remarkable people overcoming remarkable challenges with resilience, dedication, community, and grit. Listen as they share their stories of overcoming adversity. Open your eyes to what is genuinely possible for all of us. Authentic Adversity with host Chris Howe. Welcome back to the Authentic Adversity podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please like, comment, and of course, subscribe. Uh, today, I have the honor of sitting down with a friend of mine. Uh, he is the author of Dharma Punks, the founder of Refuge Recovery and Against the Stream. Uh, welcome, Noah Levine. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Yeah, man, it's great to see you. Um, you know, it's uh, it's been it's been a little while since we've been sort of face to face through, uh, I mean, th- through a screen. But um, yeah, it's it's always great to connect. And uh, you know, you've you've really um, well, you and Refuge Recovery and the groups associated have really um, had a, a a big impact on my life in recovery and have had. Um, you know, has really, really changed the dynamic and the direction of my recovery. And, uh, you know, for that, I'm, I'm forever grateful. And um, it's, it's been an honor to, to have our own group and to be connected to the people in refuge, because I mean, what a, what a, what a perfect for me, it's perfect for my life and for my, um, you know, my, my lifestyle as well. I've, I've met some fantastic people, made some unreal friendships through it. And uh, yeah, man, I, I, I just, uh, you know, I want to say thank you for for kind of birthing the program and um, and continuing to do all that you do. It's amazing. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And, you know, always I'm always stoked to meet, you know, anybody that's committed to recovery and service. Um, but then, you know, it's there's always some kind of like when there's mirroring, you know, people like you who look like me, come from a similar background, similar interests, yeah. you know, that, that, that sort of, um, you know, th- there's a lot of people in recovery who we wouldn't normally associate with. And then there's the people like us where it's like, oh yeah, we would be friends anyways. For sure. For sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely. And, and, uh, and I think that, um, it, that it really attracts a lot of like-minded people, but also people that, you know, I, people that, you know, I, I have connected with that I wouldn't otherwise have a connection with. So, you know, that's a beautiful thing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I, I usually like to talk about um, the guest story and sort of like how they got to where they are today and sort of adversities, adversities they've overcome in life and, uh, and how your life is different as a result. And uh, I mean, for anybody who hasn't read Dharma Punks, go out and get the book. It's fantastic. I mean, to me, that's what that's before I met you, I had read the book and um, and I could connect and relate to so much in that in that book. You know, your childhood was very, very similar to mine. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that I, I found myself reading it just saying like, oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. You know, and so the relatability was amazing. Um, and, and just to get to know a bit about your story was fantastic um, prior to meeting you and then spending some time, you know, doing work with you and, um, you know, staying connected uh, has, has been amazing. But I feel like I know, you know, in reading the book, I, I know a side of you that, um, you know, I know you're, I, I know how you got to where you are today. And so I would love for the viewers and listeners to, 
to kind of get a sense of what's in that book and um, and and what brought you to um, where you are in life today. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, hard to do concise, but you know, my early life, you know, I was born into a, a family of, um, you know, American hippies. And, mm-hmm. you know, my father was already very much into Hinduism and Buddhism and, you know, was a poet and a writer and a drug addict, you know, that had, you know, uh, my father has stories about like, you know, I used to, uh, you know, strung out on heroin, carrying guns in Mexico City, um, doing this sort of beatnik, like, uh, you know, drug addict, poet, you know, thing. And, and he said, and at some point, he's, I was more and more interested in spiritual awakening. He said, and at some point, I just wanted to know truth. I just wanted to know, I think he framed it as, I just wanted to know God more than I wanted to continue to get high. And that that was, and this is like before I was born, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm born into this family where my father's um, doing service at San Quentin, teaching meditation. Mm -hmm. He did a book called Death Row about his work with inmates in, in San Quentin. Um, he's doing death and dying work, working with Ram Dass, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And, you know, my, so my father, Stephen Levine, you know, has written 12 books, something like that. Right. Um, a, a real kind of one of the Western New Age pioneers mm-hmm. of spirituality. So I'm born into this family, but my parents are divorced by the time I'm two years old. Uh, my mother's an alcoholic. My, you know, father is very committed to service mm-hmm. and meditation, and teaching. Not that committed to parenting, <laughs> right? Right. In, in um, you know, in a lot of ways, he's, uh, you know, prioritizing his path over his parenting. Okay. And, you know, so and, and I have some trauma in my early life and my mother remarries abusive stepfather. By the time I'm five years old, I'm consciously contemplating suicide. Right. I'm, you know, I have like an ideation. I have a plan. I have a I have a desire to not exist mm. by the time I'm five. Yeah. Now, this is also coupled with my father's death and dying work and hospice and Buddhist Hindu ideology where he tells me, uh, we don't really die. There's reincarnation, right? You know, this body dies, but you know, we're in this process, this cycle of over and over. Mm -hmm. So when I'm five years old and I'm like, you know, fuck this family, this, you know, abusive stepfather, uh, I'll just kill myself Mm -hmm. and, uh, start over. Right. You know, for me, I think it's a reset. You know, yeah. I think it's like in the cartoons when, you know, they get killed, but they're there the next episode, you know, the, the coyote and the roadrunner murdering each other every episode. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and then kind of like, oh, but you continue. You're, you're there the next next episode. Yeah. So, you know, um, a lot of pain, a lot of angst, a lot of mm-hmm. confusion in my early life, which led for me to being like, well, what's that stuff my dad's smoking? Mm-hmm. What's that stuff my mom's drinking? What are those little square tabs of, uh, you know, paper 
uh, those sheets of paper in the film canister in the freezer. Right. So by the time I'm six, I'm smoking weed. By the time I'm seven, I'm drinking booze. By the time I'm 10, I'm eating acid. I'm stealing my mom's mushrooms. Like I'm a child. Yeah just going hard in drugs. That's you know? young, yeah. Uh, really young. Right. But it was there. Yeah. It was there and I didn't want to feel. And I was like, oh, this makes me not feel. Right. Or it makes me temporarily feel better. Mm -hmm. So I started self-medicating really, really young. Yeah. And it was fun. It was fun for a minute. Right. You know, it was, um, and, you know, one of the formative things that happened for me is feeling so disconnected with my family, feeling so, um, you know, disenfranchised, even though I'm kind of growing up as a little white kid with white privilege, still feeling like disenfranchised in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, I found punk rock at 10 years old. Mm hmm. You know, I, I, you know, when I heard the Sex Pistols, when I heard Black Flag, you know, so I'm born 71. So I'm talking about like 1980, 1981. Right. Uh, and when I heard that music, I was like, oh, okay, uh, these people get it. Mm -hmm. The punk rockers are screaming, you know, how I feel. Yeah. And that, you know, that led to like having, uh, you know, by the time I was 12, I was going to punk shows all ages shows in Santa Cruz where I grew up mm -hmm. connected with the misfits, with the outsiders. It gave me some, you know, what later in Buddhism we call Sangha and right. recovery fellowship. Yeah. Community gave me, gave me some community and a, a, a sense of belonging, mm -hmm. but also lots of violence, lots of drugs, right. <laughs> lots, lots of dangerous situations. Mm -hmm. uh, and the punk rockers fighting with the skinheads and the, you know, uh, break. We, we had this all ages clubs club when I was a teenager that uh, half of the time they were like a hip hop break dancing club okay. and half of the time they were a club. Oh, cool. So then, you know, we, you know, the punks and the, and the break dancers weren't getting along in the early 80s. Right. And we would clash and there would be all these fights with the kind of hip hop kids and the punk rock kids. Yeah. I bet <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. And then within the punk scene, lots of lots of violence and lots of different cliques, you know, the of course, skinheads and the, the racist skinheads and the non-racist skinheads and the, mm -hmm. you know, punks and the hardcore kids. And yeah, it was. but I loved it. You know, I feel blessed to have grown up in the uh, maybe most people feel this way, but uh, in the early 80s where, you know, where, whatever generation we come from, mm -hmm. like, you know, we, we look back and we're like those, those salad days. That was great. It was amazing. For sure. For sure. Especially the punk, <laughs> like punk rock hardcore scene. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, to me, it's like a golden era. And, you know, I, and very much similar to what you're saying, you know, that, that sense of community in, in that, sub, uh, that culture and subculture, uh, it brought me everything. It brought me everything that I was searching for when I didn't have it as a child. So it checked a lot of boxes for me. But as you said, in checking those boxes came a lot of violence a lot of substance abuse, a lot of tension and anxiety and that sort of thing. But but yeah. the, the music still kept us somehow united or somehow it, it, they kept us in that community and, and, and really gave us something to hold on to, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then and then the party ended, you know, pretty, pretty quickly for me, mm -hmm. um, you know, by 1985, 86, you know, I'm doing coke, I'm starting to inject heroin and yeah. doing speedballs, I'm smoking crack, 
mm-hmm. you know, like I had like a, a two year crack run from, you know, at like from 15 to 17 years old and okay. three felony arrests and juvenile hall and, you know, and and lost my contact with uh, the punk scene because I was more interested in getting loaded. I was more, right. you know, I was too strung out to even bother going to the show. Um, mm-hmm. And I was committing crimes and getting locked up and, but it turned it around for me. Like, you know, I also can look back, uh, you know, that's 35 years ago now. And I can look back with gratitude, with that sort of gratitude of, of the suffering that led me to the desperation. I got sober in 1988 when I was 17 years old, yeah. sitting in juvenile hall and, um, you know, looking at probably being locked up for a long time and having that breakthrough moment, that aha, that moment of clarity, spiritual awakening, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. Where for the first time in my life, I realized I was there based on my actions. Hmm. Accountability. (laughs) Yeah. Just a little bit of accountability, just a little bit of personal responsibility where up until that time, and I'd been in that place a dozen times, the same jail and, um, you know, I, I started getting arrested when I was 11. And this is, you know, some seven, you know, this is six years later, or uh, eight years later, six years later, when I'm 17. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, I was, it was always blame. And it was society and the system and the cops and the hippies and the, you know, religious right. And right. I was like, <laughs> blaming everybody else for my crime and my violence. And my, exactly. You know? As we do, right? <laughs> You know, yeah. I'm, I, I'm a, a product of my environment. Right. You know? Like, it's your fault. You made me this way. <laughs> yeah. Which is hopeless, right? As yeah. long as there's, it's all blame, then there's no free will to, to change. Mm-hmm. I, and I really, I felt quite stuck until I didn't, until I had that moment where I knew I was an addict. I knew I was a drug addict. I'd been trying to stop smoking crack. I'd been trying to, I did the the classic stuff that everybody does of like, well, I'll just only drink and smoke weed, right? you know, and then start drinking and then hard drugs and then start trying to just smoke weed and then drinking and then hard drugs or, yeah. Um, so, you know, two things happened where uh, I started going to 12 step meetings mm-hmm voluntarily i've been court ordered to 12-step meetings since i was like 13 years old i knew about i knew about it yeah but i i went because i was looking i was uh i had some hope right right and when i was in that um you know willingness and that hope uh, my father took the opportunity on the phone Mm -hmm. uh to give me basic meditation instructions yeah basic mindfulness of the breath mindfulness present time awareness and so I was just sitting in my cell, meditating, trying to, right. trying to ignore my mind and bring my attention to my breath. Yeah. And I found a little bit of, you know, I couldn't do it very well. I was detoxing and I was, you know, right. Uh, my mind was going to prison and regret and prison and regret and prison <laughs> and shame from the past and yeah. future and past. But I got a little bit of relief from bringing my attention and, and, and it was a, a revelation to me. I didn't realize I could ignore my mind. Mm-hmm. I just been obeying my mind my whole life. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doing whatever my head told me to do, which was getting me locked up over and over. Yeah. Uh, and then 
that mindful intervention of actually you can choose to ignore your mind and pay attention to your breath. You can't stop your mind, mm-hmm. but you can let it the background and you can redirect and come back to the body over and over. Right, right. And I saw the direct experience of like, this is really fucking hard, but it works a little bit. There's yeah. a little, you know, this is, there's a, uh, and in the 12 step rooms, they're saying, well, pray and God will restore you to sanity. And I was like, that, that makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'll well, try yeah. it, but this any sense to me at all. Um, but the mindfulness, you know, the, the meditation was like, oh no, this is, an action that I can do myself. Yeah. And that was, you know, a huge turning point for me. This episode of the Authentic Adversity podcast is brought to you and sponsored by Another Road Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center. Another Road offers a client-centered recovery program tailored to every individual's circumstances. Their focus is to create a supportive healing environment rather than a rigid, rule-based institution. Their dedicated commitment upholds the individual values respecting each person's desire for recovery. Another Road understands that every individual requires a unique and focused approach to their recovery. Certain modalities of treatment are introduced along with the tools necessary for each client. Located in a rural setting, their addiction treatment center for all genders provides the perfect setting for a transformative recovery experience and sense of belonging. The private residential treatment facility offers an unparalleled program with counselors that have in-depth knowledge based on varying years of experience in addiction. Another Road utilizes unique individual focus plans for recovery that address the complexities of drug addiction, alcoholism, and prescription medication misuse. They have a 65% success rate when clients follow their program. I know many people who have completed this program and they have absolutely rave reviews. To learn more, visit anotherroad.ca. I think that's a great, um, you know, a, a really important point because I think a lot of us who start out in twelve-step rooms, um, those rooms save our lives. Uh, and I take, I, I, I will never say a bad word about twelve-step rooms because, and I still am, you know, I, I'll still go to a twelve-step meeting um, and really get a lot from it. But there is that piece that I, I think. Um, for a lot of us, especially in early recovery, when they talk about the higher power piece and the praying and, and this sort of thing, well, you know, we're in a position where we think, well, if there is a higher power or a God of some sort, why, ha- why has he landed me in the place that I'm at today? And, you know, there's a lot of pushback and a lot of, um, and, and I think a lot of us leave those rooms for fear of those words or for fear of it being, uh, a, a religious program or, or, you know, people say a cult or, or whatever, you know, but I, I know that I spent 10 years coming in and out of the rooms, always running from that one, you know, the two things, the higher power and the word God. And, um, because I couldn't, I needed something tangible that I could, that, that, that could be, um, that, that I could feel change and that I could, um, that I could do on my own and something that, you know, I, I, I pushed back a lot on I can't put my faith into something that I can't see or I can't, um, you know, I just I pushed back hard on it. And I think a lot of people, younger people, especially coming into the rooms, um, that is a huge barrier. And um, and so to 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 sort of um, find mindfulness and meditation where it is bringing me tangible results and I can actually feel the change and I can actually, this is a, a practice I can do myself. 
and you know i can do a five minute meditation or a 35 minute meditation and have tangible results where i can feel better i can be i can disconnect from the pain that i'm i'm I may be in and I can change my, I'm not changing my, um, my reality, but I'm moving through it and I'm not just giving it up to something that I can't see or, or, or feel or touch. That's so key. Changing, uh, changing our relationship right. to our reality yeah. rather than just being in that reactive I hate pain. I love pleasure. Right. <laughs> Fight or flight of actually learning to sit in, learning to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. learning to you know, learning to be with pain, learning eventually compassion for pain, which was foreign. You know, I didn't know how to do that. Right. It took me years to learn how to uh, actually care about myself. Yeah, yeah, and to let go. You know, and to let go of you know, the needing the next fix, the next pleasant distraction. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And temporary distraction. Temporary distraction. Mm -hmm. And repetitive, (laughs) repetitive, repetitive craving for our temporary distractions. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that was the huge, you know, shift for me. And then, you know, there was, then there was, um, you know, I was a, a, a sober punk rocker. I ended up in a group home and, you know, uh, and I was going to 12 step, but I didn't really feel like I belonged there. I met some people. I met some, you know, guys that like came into the juvie and were doing service. Mm-hmm. And, but, um, you know, I didn't really click with them. Right. But good enough, you know, at least a little bit of community. But then in the punk scene, this is 1988. So there's this second wave of straight edge. Yeah. You know, youth crew with, you know, the bands from Orange County, like Instead and No for an Answer, Mm -hmm. the New York bands, Youth of Today and Bold and Gorilla Biscuits. And so it's this great time. I'm 17. I'm sober and straight edge, you know, and there's all these, you know, sober punk rockers, hardcore kids. Yeah. Um, and so, so like I had something to identify with as like, not only am I in recovery, but I still have this punk identity that is drug-free punk punk. Now, rather than being the, you know, crusty street drug addict punk that I used to be, now I'm going to be the clean cut, sober, hardcore punk. For sure. You know? And you are still getting the community from the straight edge, you know, the st- straight edge crews, right? Like you've got people to connect with and people to, um, fill your time, like go to going to shows and do still doing the things that you love and being accepted in that community of, of, you know, you know, we're not warping our minds. We're not warping our bodies. We're, you know, we're, we're straight edge and we're sober and, you know, but we're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And my ego just grasped to it. I was just grasping, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, I met one other guy in Santa Cruz, uh, my friend Russ, who became and, you know, continues to be the singer for Good Riddance Mm -hmm. and Only Crime. And, you know, and he was sober, too. And we were like these teenage sober straight edge kids. And there was no straight edge scene really in Santa Cruz except for us. Oh, yeah. And then we sort of created this scene. And, you know, but we would go to Berkeley and go to Gilman Street and see all the bands that were coming through. And uh, it was it was a, you know, it was a good time. And I got more serious. It took me about a year and a half to get serious about my meditation practice. Uh, that first year I was half-assed about it. Um, I still thought 
if I could get the motorcycle, the low rider, the girlfriend, mm-hmm. my, you know, boots, <laughs> yeah. record collection, you know, just that sort of like material stuff. I thought, oh, you know, as long as I stay clean and I get some stuff, I'll be happy. Right. But like, I didn't know how to live, you know, so I was, I was doing graffiti, I was stealing, I was fighting, I was clicked up with like pseudo motorcycle club stuff. There was like some bad shit happening sure. around me, even though I was sober. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, that was the sort of second adversity for me that was like, well, meditation is the only place I'm finding any real hope. Right. And so I'm going to try to take this more seriously. And I'm going to try to work the 12 steps. I hadn't really worked them. Um, I'm trying to find my way through the 12 steps with a sponsor. And and I went to my first meditation retreat. It's mm-hmm. a three-day silent meditation retreat. I'm 19 years old. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and then I was like, okay, I, I found, you know, in Buddhism, in recovery, I found fellowship. Mm-hmm. In Straight Edge, I found fellowship, community. Um, but in the 12 steps, I, do, I couldn't quite get my mind around the theistic philosophy, uh, okay. the, the God, higher power, powerlessness, defects of character. There was just too much philosophically that I didn't believe. I don't believe that humans are powerless and that only God can restore humans to sanity. I don't believe that humans are defective or, you know, that these natural you know, uh, afflictive emotions are shortcomings. Right. I don't believe, you know, I didn't believe any of that, but I believed in the peer support. Mm-hmm. I believed in service. I believed in, you know, helping each other. And in Buddhism, I found something that I could believe in what we were just talking about right. of like, Oh, here's, here's an action that I can take. I can train my mind. Mm-hmm. I can sit in meditation. I can change my relationship to pain and pleasure. I can change my relationship to the self, the ego, uh, through doing the work, mm-hmm. through taking the action, not a external higher power divine intervention, but through humanist psychology uh, of uh, directly experiencing. And being an alcoholic addict, I have a tendency, you and I both, we have a tendency yeah. to... Yeah, we're not going to get one tattoo. (laughs) We're going to get covered in tattoos. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to, you know, and once I, and I, so that energy, that, you know, kind of compulsive, impulsive, all in energy for me went towards spiritual awakening. I was like, okay, I want to get free. Right. I want to wake up. I want to heal. And so I started doing retreats and sitting every day and going to, five-day retreats, then 10-day retreats, then 30-day retreats, then 90-day retreats, just going all in on the kind of like, I want to see how far I can take this thing. And then Buddhism talking about enlightenment. And I'm like, okay, let's, what's enlightenment? I want that. Sure. Nirvana. I want that. <laughs> you know, more yeah. craving. More of that same, like, I want a craving to, you know, escape. Right. <laughs> but in a healthier way, mm-hmm. you know, in a wiser way and, and in an immature way in those early years that led eventually to a, a more mature understanding of what it means to yeah. heal and to recover and to, to get free from suffering. You know, the bad news is Buddhism, uh, there's no freedom from pain. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I, I think I thought in the early, early years that if I was 
spiritual and ethical and wise and that I wouldn't have pain anymore. And, you know, it, it took me a long time to realize like, oh, that's not how it works. Yeah, right. You still have pain, life, you know, there's all of this pain and difficulty and, you know, conflicts and, you know, in life. But the tools to, as you were saying earlier, navigate it, to deal with it, to change our relationship Definitely. to it. Yeah, right. Well, that's the thing, right? It's life is life is not going to change for us just because we are meditating and we're practicing mindfulness and we're part of these groups and, you know, life is still going to happen to us. So let's prepare for life to happen and move through it yeah. with a healthy relationship to these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, our lives change in drastic ways because we're not on the streets anymore. We're not strung out, but it doesn't make pain go away. It doesn't make impermanence and challenging relationships and group dynamics and, you know, doesn't get rid of the ego. And if anything, it, you know, recovery and, you know, can inflate the ego and that Sometimes, sense of yeah. self, Yeah, you know. And so, you know, trying to, you know, there's so much work to be done once we get sober and then we start turning inward and, and really investigating, you know, so I was, you know, I spent 10 years, you know, just going to retreats and going to Asia and, you know, I spent two years celibacy in my early, in, you know, totally celibate in my early twenties and yeah. uh, had a teacher and was studying with the Buddhists. And, um, and then at some point, I thought maybe I'd become a monk, you know, and, and some of my teachers were monks. And I thought maybe a monastic and, and then the, you know, the hardcore kids uh, from youth of today, mm -hmm. uh, Ray and Purcell, yeah. they became Hare Krishnas, right? Yeah. And so then there's shelter, right? Then there's this Hindu influence in yeah. the and, and they're celibate, they're brahmacharya. And so there was all of this support of like young men being celibate, being ethical, being vegetarian, being, you know, all of these, right. uh, you know, all through the late, late, late 80s, early 90s. Um, so there was a huge influence there and support on some level, but I didn't love the Hindu stuff. Mm -hmm. It was also a little too theistic for me. Okay. There's, you know, they're they're still petitioning Krishna as their higher power. Where Buddhism, uh, just I just resonated so much because there's no higher power. There's no there's no uh, theism. It's humanist psychology. Right. So, um, anyways, and you know, in my late late twenties, um, after I was sober for about ten years, some of my teachers, my father, Ajahn Amaro, my Buddhist monk teacher, Jack Cornfield, my uh, secular, you know, householder teacher, they all started to encourage me to teach mm -hmm. to my sort of the next generation. And so I started doing some meditation groups and doing some teacher training. And, uh, and then I, you know, I wrote that first book that we were talking about Dharma punks, right. you know, and that came out in 2003. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of just like led to this trajectory of like, I did a five-year teacher training. I did a master's degree in psychology. I, you know, I went back to school. I became a, you know, uh, graduate level psychologist and, um, you know, and then the second book against the stream. And then the third book, uh, heart of the revolution, you know, in the early, you know, 2000, I think it's like 2003, 2007, 2011. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, um, refuge recovery. You know, I started teaching and, and Dharma punks 
became bigger and, and against, and I opened meditation centers against the stream meditation centers. And half of the people were in recovery. Right. But I didn't in the beginning, I made a decision early on. I was like, I don't want to exclude people from our Buddhist community who aren't in recovery. Mm -hmm. Right. Because there was, for me, it was recovery that led me to Buddhism. But as I started teaching and Dharma punks, all of these punk rockers that were like, I'm not an addict, but I need this. Right. Right. Yeah. And so when I started teaching, I just kind of said like, well, this is a kind of alternative Buddhist community okay. against the straight new Dharma punks. Mm-hmm. But then so many people came to me over the years saying like, I want to use this for my recovery. I don't like the Christian based 12 steps. Yeah. I want to use Buddhism. And I hated having to say like, mm, we have to do both. Yeah, we got to do you know our Buddhist practice, and we got to do some twelve step stuff, even if we don't like the philosophy. Right, um, right. Which led me eventually to kind of realizing, oh, we need a Buddhist recovery program mm-hmm. because you know this is perfect for recovery, but we need peer led support, mm-hmm. um, which led to the creation of Refuge Recovery, and it was about two thousand eight when I started it in Los Angeles, and then took a few years trying the groups out and kind of testing them and seeing what was working and what wasn't working and, yeah. you know, creating, you know, the, adapting the four noble truths and the eightfold path as the process of recovery. Um, and then the book came out in 14 and within a couple of years, there was hundreds of refuge meetings. Yeah. Um, I think by the time we were like four years in, we were up to almost 800 refuge recovery meetings around the world. Wow. Cause when the book came out, there was just so much hunger for it. Yeah. And and people, both the 12 step people who were like, I need to learn to meditate and I like Buddhism and the people who were like, oh, I don't like the 12 steps, but I need to get into a recovery program. Yes. Uh, So, you know, it just really, uh, you know, took off in a big way. For sure. And, you know, and, you know, 12 step, 12 step does encourage meditation as well. So like there is a, a bit of a crossover there and. Um, you know, and, and refuge has a set of inventories. Like there is, uh, to me, it feels like refuge takes all the, all the practical pieces from 12 step and adapts them into a program that I can, that I can use and, and leaves all the other stuff and all that other stuff is great for some people, but the stuff that, uh, the stuff that I, I wasn't connecting with. I find this is what I find beautiful about refuge. It it's, you know, refuge has it all for me, um, because the stuff that I didn't connect with is not in the program, but the stuff that really worked in my life when I was working the steps, doing inventory, uh, you know, making amends, just living better, passing, uh, you know, carrying the message, all of these things is part of refuge. So you know, those are the things, and and those are the big things that gave me freedom in twelve step. So I still get yeah. to do the things that, you know, that encourage freedom in my life. But now I have some tangible, uh, you know, uh, processes and, and, and a community of people who are on the same page. And, you know, a lot of the people that I know that, that are refuge members have come over from 12 step. Maybe they, they dip their toe in both, which is fantastic as well. Right. Like the, that's what I love about Another thing I love about refuge is there's no um, there's no uh, substance specific talk. 
Um, there's no, um, you know, we, we nobody is ever saying, even if you came from the 12-step rooms, nobody is taking anything away from that program because we've all, we, from for a lot of us, it saved our lives, right? And so th there's probably some 12 step bashing that happens in some circles, <laughs> uh, maybe in some circles. I know that the meetings that I've been in, it gets shut down real quick because, yeah. and I, you know, as the founder, like you, I'm always really open about, I still go to 12 steps. It says in the book, go to 12 step meetings yeah. for, for community. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always trying, you know, I'm a little bit, you know, as a, you know, long-term member of of 12-step community i'm happy to critique it a little bit and talk about the stuff that doesn't make sense to me right but i'm also always honest about i'm still a member i and i still attend and i yeah. you know and for me as the founder of refuge recovery i love to go to 12-step meetings so i can actually be anonymous i love refuge i attend meetings i secretary a meeting mm -hmm. um but you know as you can imagine being the founder you don't quite get the uh, experience of anonymity, you know, of yeah, like for sure. just being a member where I could go to, you know, AA and just be a member. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Carousel Tattoo and Barbershop. Custom tattoos and traditional barbering exceptionally tailored for each individual. Located in the historic lakeside community of Port Dalhousie, Ontario, Carousel Tattoo and Barbershop creates from their passion and dedication to the craft. Combining traditional standards of uncompromising quality and exceptional service with modern craftsmanship to create a one-of-a-kind tattoo experience and head-turning cuts. Their aim is to continuously improve their skill set and give back to their trade and local community in a positive and impactful way. Visit Carousel Tattoo and Barbershop in Port Dalhousie, Ontario. I was talking about how refuge you know, kind of exploded in, you know, hundreds of meetings and, and I made some mistakes, you know, and I've, I've made lots of mistakes. That's <laughs> what we all life. have. Yeah. But I made some mistakes around, um, not creating enough structure. Okay. And kind of having this like, Ooh, I, I created the program. Let's let the community create the structure. Let's trust that everyone will come together and we will have a democratic process of creating a infrastructure for this program. Right. Which made it really wild, wild west anarchist. And, you know, I was just too, I was just too, um, I wasn't really standing in the um, responsibility okay. that I had as mm. the founder. And, you know, I was trying to be non-attached, but it really was irresponsible. Right. And so then, you know, there's a lot of crosstalk happening in meetings and a lot of people trying to use meetings to like build their therapy practice or to play meditation teacher or yeah, um, it got really messy. And I ended up, you know, getting this really big board of directors kind of like, yeah, everybody, you know, I think we had 15 directors or something. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that I've had to wake up to is my own arrogance you know, of kind of, um, you know, I, I think I'm quite confident and, um, but, you know, my own arrogance around like, oh, this is, I, I didn't see how south it was going to go. Right. And, you know, within a year or so of having this big board of directors and hundreds of meetings, there was the factions that were like, well, we want it to be this way and we want it to be that way. And really quickly people saying like, and we think Noah should step down because of like, you know, in order to this to really be a community led, we can't have a founder. Okay, you know, yeah. And that's sort of like Bill Wilson didn't put his name on the Alcoholics Anonymous book, even though he wrote it. Right. You know, why is Noah's name on the refuge book? 
which fair enough, you know, good, good question. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, the attacks started coming, you okay. know, the kind of really the, the criticism, the blame. And, and then there was a totally false accusation from a woman that I was dating mm-hmm. that just led to a cancellation, you know, basically five years ago, you know, 30, I'm, I'm 30 years sober. I, you know, am like, have dedicated my whole life to this thing. I'd recently been divorced. I was dating again. I was probably being a little bit reckless in my dating life, not not super careful, kind of, you know, meeting people online and not getting to know them well enough before, right. you know, dating. And, um, and it led to this, you know, complete implosion and sort of cancellation behind almost, you know, almost no truth to what was being said, but it didn't matter. Yeah. Because, you know, it starts the, 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 you know, and some people in both in the refuge recovery and against the stream community used it as an opportunity to take power. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were stolen from the nonprofit, the mailing list, all of that stuff. Yeah. And I share that authentic adversity, thir- you know, 30 years into recovery being at this place where, you know, my, you know, reputation was, you know, destroyed, tarnished, my own meditation teachers in the Buddhist uh, secular establishment in the, in the kind of um, Western insight, you know, spirit rock also turned on me. They're like, Ooh, you're bad for business. There's a lot of, Mm. you know, bad for business. You got to go away. Yeah. So what an interesting for me, the way that I framed it and continue to, uh, opportunity to practice what I preach. Uh, like I preach compassion and forgiveness and yep. acceptance and, and, um, you know, to be, you know, my late forties and 30 years sober and lose everything. Yeah. Both of my nonprofits went away, all of my income, all of my status, everything. The publishers were like, we might have to cancel your, you know, like mm. some some of these authors that are getting canceled, there's so much pressure on the publisher that they're like pulling their, their books, you know? Wow, yeah. You know, a little side note to that, I was like, so if you cancel my publishing contract, does that mean I get the rights to my books back? Mm. And they were like, they were like, yeah, we return to you. I was like, you should totally cancel me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love to have the rights to my books back because you're making all the money off of these fucking books. I right. Mean, <laughs> give them back to me. I'll self-publish them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they decided to hold on to them because they were still selling. Right. <laughs> uh, so just the adversity and the, you know, the being able to walk through you know, heartbreak, betrayal, Mm -hmm. and really having to look at what's my part? What's my side of the street? What did I do to create this? And kind of of seeing like, oh, I had some unskillful behaviors, even Mm -hmm. if they were not anything that I was accused of, but just, you know, there were some minor, uh, unskillful, unconscious. I wasn't so conscious. I said earlier, I was being irresponsible. I wasn't so conscious about my power, how I was seen as the teacher, the founder, you know, Mm -hmm. white male patriarch of this, you know, community that had grown to thousands and thousands of people. But what a wonderful healing opportunity Mm. to, to really walk through it and be heartbroken, but to tend to my own heartbreak. 
and to go and make amends. You know, there's people who, like I said, um, stole right. hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I had a part and I had caused some harm to them too, offended and been unskillful with them in some ways. So to go and make a direct amends to people mm. who had lied about me, who had created the whole scandal and who had, you know, stolen all of that stuff, but still have that willingness to be like, I know what to do. Right. My recovery principles are I take full responsibility for what's true about what I've done. Mm -hmm. And I don't get to, you know, you have your karma. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, I, you, you know, you're responsible for what you did here, but I'm still going to take responsibility for what I did here. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm five years out of that, you know, <laughs> that was all five years ago now. Yeah. And you know, been able to rebuild refuge and against the stream and working on a new book and, um, you know, and and learned a lot. And it was a, you know, it was a wonderful experience that I recommend. I think every spiritual teacher, every should be canceled. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so good for the ego. It's so good for the process of healing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's traumatic financially and i'm a parent and i worry about you know providing for my children and all of that but yeah i've always said and believed it's not about the money money doesn't buy happiness yeah um i like money and i like toys and I'm, i like motorcycles and low riders and all of that stuff sure. <laughs> that costs, i like the stuff that costs money uh but i you know having that opportunity to go from successful to you know failure mm -hmm. and everything going away and then starting over right and rebuilding yeah. and rebuilding hopefully with more wisdom and more understanding that like in refuge recovery we need an infrastructure yeah. and i can't wait for the community to create that that's something that i have to create yeah we needed the guiding principles we needed the essential elements mm -hmm. in order for this thing to not implode on itself again right yeah for sure so you it know, prompted a lot of that yeah, when I was creating Refuge, I was like, well, it took them 15 years to create the 12 traditions. Yeah. So we got time. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but within five years, you know, it was, you know, uh, you know, the divisions, the schism was already, you know, there. Mm -hmm. And so now we're rebuilding. And I think Refuge is back at about 400 meetings, you know, a couple hundred online, a couple hundred in person. Yeah. And, you know, every week there's new meetings starting and it's it's regrowing. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it, the pandemic didn't help, you know, losing all of the meetings during the pandemic and everyone having to go online, then it's a whole rebuilding process. Yeah, definitely. But I think, um, so I, I, I think that because there's so many online refuge meetings, I think that the people are now really hungry for in-person, right? So I think in where we are today, like out of this pandemic and, and you know, able to to meet in in groups and that sort of thing. I think that um, I'm seeing more and more in-person meetings popping up. I'm actually um, I'm actually going to open a, an in-person uh, within the next couple months. Um, I actually just sent an email uh, last week about it, and uh, because my community, uh, I mean, we I don't have a refuge an in-person refuge meeting within an hour's driving distance. So my community is starving for it, would love it. Yeah. Anybody who comes yeah. to our online meeting is like, 
where can I get more of this? I need this. Like, why is there not in person? This is what these are. This is the missing piece that I've been looking for. And I feel like, um, and that was the same, that was the emotion that I, that I experienced when I first found refuge, you know, it was like, this is, this is the fit, you know, like I, I'm, I'm now I've, I've finally found my fit and my, my community really. So, um, I'm really excited to open an in-person. Um, and I think that it's going to be an, uh, I think it's going to be a hit in, in my area because it's, it's, we don't have it. And I know a lot of people go to online meetings around here, so they're going to, you know, jump to get to an, an in-person I, I'm hoping. And, and I think there used, there used to be some refuge meetings up in Toronto. You guys are close to Toronto, right? Yeah. We're about, uh, 45 minutes from Toronto. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple there still, but yeah, it, it I mean, where where I'm at, you know, you got to drive. Who wants to drive an hour to a meeting, spend an hour at a meeting and drive an hour home? Right. Yeah. Um, No, for sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited about that. And I think that, um, you know, helping helping to build that community here locally for me is going to be is going to is also going to give back a lot. Um, And and. We've got a great space opening up for it too. So I'm just really, really stoked on it all. Um, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I, it's, uh, I'm really excited for it. And I know that I've got like a bunch of people kind of like just waiting, like wait, waiting to jump at it. So it's great. Um, no. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I, always, I always love hearing that because, you know, you feel that way. I feel that way too. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I, um, you know, it's a little bit strange to be the founder of, of something, but, um, you know, I created what I wanted to participate in, mm-hmm. you know, I, like it's, you know, to have a group, a recovery group where we're meditating together mm-hmm. and we're talking about addiction because the Buddhists, you know, they don't understand addiction, right? you know, and then the, the recovery people don't understand Buddhism. So to be able to have that conversation in the same room, yeah, uh, so so cool yeah it's it's honestly it's a perfect marriage of the two the two groups right like and and i think that you do such a great job of it and the the work that you do with against the stream as well you know you're 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 uh leading groups in meditation and and starting a conversation there as well which i think is really important and i mean i don't when i'm in my car i don't listen to music anymore I, I'm, I'm always, I'm listening to a Dharma talk or something, you know, um, and, and I think to me, that's that, that piece that you give back there as well is, is massive because, um, you know, we can all access that stuff. Yeah. Well, and for anybody listening to the podcast that wants to, that's interested in, uh, every Monday night I do the against the stream and you can come live on zoom. So that's through the againstthestream.com. People can ch- find that out. And then um, the first Thursday of every month, I do a Dharma talk, a, a short one for Refuge Recovery. And so that's the first Thursday through refugerecovery.org. And anybody interested in meetings, you know, go to the refugerecovery.org, come to Against the Stream. I do retreats. We were talking before we started the, the podcast about, um, you know, I've got a retreat next week on the East Coast in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to get back up to Canada. I used to teach in Canada quite a bit, but it's been a few years. Yeah. So I'd be, I just need the right invitation, someone to help me, you know, organize some things, but I'm happy to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I 
love to to travel and do some classes and some day longs and some retreats and so uh, hopefully I'll get up to you, visit you guys at some point. Well, for sure. Let's keep that conversation going because uh, I definitely love to talk about helping to coordinate something like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Noah, just before we get going, um, is there anything that you that you would uh, like to tell um, somebody who is, uh, let me see, on the verge of of they're maybe in their rock bottom moment or they're, they're nearing that moment. They're kind of like circling the drain. And um, is there a message that you could give to somebody who's, who's out there sick and suffering that, that knows that recovery is out there, but really doesn't think it's possible. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so hard to kind of just give a, like a pithy kind of advice. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, you know, here's what I'll say. If Chris Howe can recover, anyone can recover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, that's, that's really like the message, right? Like if, if we can do it, anybody can do it. We're not, you know, we're fucked up kids, you know, like, and, and we got it. Like anybody can get it if you're willing to do it. And that's yeah. really like the message of like, if I can, you can. Right. You know, and we can do this together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we both remember being in that hopeless situation and and no matter what anybody said to us it didn't help that much right but eventually when we you know pull our head out of our ass and out of denial and out of you know yeah um, we look around and be like oh those are people who are like me who are recovering it is possible yeah you know there's that terminal uniqueness of like you know i'm the only one that can't right and it's just not true you know and as it's like if there's any you know if there's any kind of statement that i might make to that new person is like your mind is lying to you that's very true that's very <laughs> <Yeah>. true <laughs> you know, what you, what you know is you can't trust your own fucking mind that tells you you can't heal absolutely you can it's hard but you can yeah i love that i love that amazing <laughs> <laughs> um well noah um i know you mentioned um uh, the the refugerecovery.org and the against the stream stuff i'll uh copy that on the show notes is there any other um social media that you want to mention that I mean, uh, if anyone wants to get get to know you better or follow up on your I, stuff not really i mean i have a, my you know against the stream has a social media refuge has a social media i have noah levine 108 on instagram i imagine you'll post this we'll both be posting it together on on ig yeah um, so i mean i don't i don't care much about social media it's a, a necessary yeah. uh, evil as far as i'm concerned for these kind of conversations but right uh, but yeah i think you know i'd love if there's people that hear it and get interested go to refuge meetings come check out against the stream come to a meditation retreat with me when you know, I'm just putting out my schedule for next year, a weekend in January. I have a three day in April. Um, uh, we're, we're ta- I'm taking a group of people to Thailand this year. I wish you and Joe were coming with us. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going in November. I'm scheduling again for next year for December 24 um, okay. to take a group to Thailand. So hmm. um, anyway. that's interesting. Yeah. I, you know, we haven't been in a few years. So, uh, yeah, the last time we were there was just at the beginning of the pandemic. And, uh, yeah, we hadn't been, uh, we haven't been in about what, four years now. So that would be really interesting. I'd love to, I'd love to get on on that. Maybe we can make it happen. 
Perfect. Well, let's keep chatting um, about that as, as you know, the years go by and, and, and time goes by. But uh, it's always great to catch up with you, Noah. It's uh, been an honor and a pleasure to, you know, work with you, uh, you know, communicate with you, uh, always be a, um, have you as a support you know, you're you're not a person that that leaves messages unread or, or unresponded to and that sort of thing. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, you've helped change my life in, in ways that I can't even describe. So uh, appreciate you. I love you, man. And uh, thank you for everything. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. This was really cool to do. And thank you for all the good you know service work you're doing. Appreciate it.